0: It's the folks who are crushing it, who have a regular pipeline, who are doing a lot of deals, are the ones that are making multiple impressions and have a good message that matches, you know, what that particular audience, right? It's like I tell realtors all the time, look, you're you're farming, you've got a subdivision that's your market and you farm it.
1: What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. Today, our guest is Sean O'Toole from Property Radar, and today we're talking about how to find off-market deals by directly marketing to property owners and really how to take that to the next level, to take it from kind of the old way of spray and pray and how to use the tools that companies like his, Property Radar, provide to better segment owner lists and owner audiences to clarify your message, get more deals and close more deals. And if you're kind of new to real estate investing, you might not know that many, many real estate investor type of deals where the, really the value is happen off market just like this through marketing piece or many marketing pieces that are sent through lists like the ones provided by Property Radar. Like I said, the old way marketing to property owners is kind of the spray and pray method where, heck, you've probably gotten a bunch of postcards from investors, and that's not how we can do it today with all of the information that is available from companies like Property Radar. And today we're learning about the information that is available, how we can segment some property owners based on the information that they have so we can change our message and hopefully do better deals, do more deals, and get better leads coming to us as real estate investors as we're hunting for off-market deals. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return If you're new to the show and you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. They get to see that you're engaging with the content and I get to see that you're engaging with the content and I appreciate that so much. It gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. No matter what podcast app you use, if you haven't done so yet, do look us up, the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Hit the subscribe button. That way you'll get every new episode every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. We're all about consistency here. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, we look forward to seeing you back here. Once again, our guest is Sean O'Toole from Property Radar. Today, we're talking about sourcing and finding off-market deals using better technology, better information, and better segmentation of property owners. Without any further ado, here we go. Sean, thank you for joining us today.
0: Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here.
1: It's going to be a great conversation for our listeners. I think very productive for those who want to get out there and hunt down their own deals. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your business, can you tell us about your company and a bit about your background?
0: Yeah. So a tech guy, kind of Silicon Valley in the nineties and uh after the dot-com crash ended up flipping uh, real estate, everything from, you know, small uh, residential properties to industrial and commercial and multifamily and everything kind of in between 160 plus deals. And then put my tech and uh, real estate uh, backgrounds together and launched a foreclosure radar, uh, which was kind of the West Coast, at least uh, uh, primary foreclosure uh, resources, kind of sold the picks and shovels during the the foreclosure crisis to realtors <laughs> and real estate investors and, uh, and launched just before that all started. So that was really good timing and then have since expanded to cover all real estate in the United States as Property Radar.
1: So what do you, I mean, let, let's get into the technology and what Property Radar provides, you know, for, for your clients?
0: Yeah. So, you know, for anybody in the real estate business or who sells or buys from, um, or lists or whatever, anybody who deals with a home or property owners, commercial land, whatever, they have this huge advantage versus other businesses in that there's a lot of information about every single one of those owners in public records. And this was the big eye-opening thing for me when I left tech and jumped into real estate is I kind of found this treasure trove and it created all this opportunity for me. And of course, the whole foreclosure crisis, if you wanted to you know, bid at auctions, if you're a realtor, you wanted to help somebody with a short sale, if you're a credit repair, everybody who wanted to, even city governments that wanted to help folks facing foreclosure all of that data sat in the public record. And so we got really good at going and getting that data and making it usable for uh, the folks that wanna work in that um, space. So, you know, as a real estate investor, right? You can go look at on-market deals. Those are listed for sale, but that's a very, very, very small portion of the total market. And we basically open up and give you access to that off-market opportunity. No, not everybody there wants to sell, but some do.
1: Awesome. Now, one of the things that I've observed about uh, the public records systems out there is, you know, I've dealt with many, many, many of these systems over the years. They're all kind of different. You have GIS, which tends to be, you know, li- maybe a little more standardized, but most, many of the systems are very different. I've actually personally written programs to scrape data from some of those those. Uh, services to get the, sites in, and
0: things, yeah,
1: exactly. But you know, for you know, building a company around that, I would imagine it's very difficult to like have anything kind of standardized to pull that information. I mean, am I am I wrong?
0: No, it's a constant challenge, right? There's three thousand one hundred forty two county or county equivalents. Um, you know, we started in California because there's only fifty you know, counties in uh, fifty two counties in California, so it's it's, you know, a large part of the nation nationwide market, but it takes it's very few counties to go get data from as you move towards the East Coast, the counties get smaller and smaller, smaller, and it gets <laughs> yes. harder and harder. Right. So it took us a long time to get uh, national, we've been kind of a leader on the West Coast for a long time. And, you know, so yeah, it's super challenging. And it's different, depending on the data, right. So like county assessor data, is actual data, right? It's bedrooms equals two, bathrooms equals three, right? It's it's pretty simple, um, and but there's a lot of issues like what a single family uh, residence is in Maricopa County in Arizona has a different coding than what it does in Alameda County, California, right? So. It is, there's a lot of work to try to kind of standardize that data and make it usable. So that's a big part of, of what we do just on the assessor records. Then you get into like the GIS data, which is here's the boundary, the, the, the line around that property that we can plot onto a map, right? Or you wanna draw you know, a circle on a map of the properties you wanna market to, right? You need GIS data for that. Again, it's data at least, so that's good. The really hard one is the county recorder's data. And that's where most of the gold is, right? The, the foreclosure notices and mortgages and sales, You know, if you want to do comparables and things like that. There, the county only has five pieces of data, right? So it's the date, document number, the document type, the grantor, and the grantee. So grantor would be like buyer, seller, borrower, lender, that kind of thing. And the rest of the information, like, what date is the foreclosure sale scheduled for, how much was the mortgage for, all of that, you have to go get the document image and look at that document to get the information off of. So we have about a billion of those documents. In <laughs> our, and one common misconception is, is that there's some big company out there that does all of that, right? there is not one company anywhere in the world that has abstracted all billion documents or anywhere close right so it's kind of one of these incestuous industries where you know this company's really good in the northeast and these guys do this and these guys do this and everybody kind of buys and sells and and the rest And then there's a whole bunch of people that resell the data too. So it gets messy, right? It gets hard to find what the best sources is, what's the most timely source, is the data accurate? One of the things that we've really prided ourselves on is going out and trying to piece together the best bits of data.
1: So, I mean, I I guess although that document, reading those documents, transcribing or however you put it, I mean, at least historically, that would all have to be done manually. Are you seeing any changes with like, image processing software i mean shoot we got you know google anytime you enter one of those ridiculous you know uh CAPTCHAs where you have to pick out the traffic lights and stuff you're actually right. training their car you know it's different from yeah. what you're working on but i gotta figure the image recognition software is probably getting close to where you need it to be at, at least
0: so one of the problems with it being such kind of a fractured thing is that you know there isn't a large investment going into doing that anywhere in particular. You know some of the big guys, the First Americans, Core Logics, whatever, have put um, a fair bit of time and energy into it and made some progress there. But I, I would say the majority of those documents are still being abstracted, is what we call call it, um, uh, okay. by hand and largely in the Philippines and in India.
1: Wow, that. Sounds painful. I guess at least people are getting paid for it. So there's something. Yeah.
0: And there's enough of us that buy it and there's enough of a, you know, like I said, incestuous market that, you know, it all gets paid for. And and it's got lots of uses from insurance to title, to credit, to, you know, making it available to investors who want to go find off market deals. So there's enough different use cases and enough money overall that it, it gets paid for and it happens.
1: Yeah. So Speaking of off-market deals, that is the, you know, I hate to say it, kind of the the buzz term, the buzz phrase, you know, everybody's looking for that elusive off-market deal. I feel like I've had so many, quote, off-market deals sent to me by brokers, which by definition are (laughs) on-market. On-market. Right. What do you think, you know, especially, you know, from your experience with Property Radar and your experience... Doing, you know, your own real estate investing. What do you think are the most relevant, you know, data points that folks need to at least start going out and marketing, finding their own off-market deals?
0: So I think most people in this business, and for good reason because it makes money easier, would just say, like, oh, the vacant list or the you know, tax delinquent list or the absentee owner list. And, you know, I think one of the things that Is a little different about us, is I would probably say none of those if you want to be successful. And here's the thing is that any one of those lists that becomes popular in pretty much every market, all of those people start getting mail and they all start getting the same mail and they all start getting the (laughs) same phone calls. Like everybody uses the same script, right? And, you know, so it was really clear to me really early on because I did a bunch of deals. I sent a bunch of direct mail that what really actually mattered was having the right message for the right person, right? And differentiating yourself from the other guy that's sending to the vacant list using the standard postcard, right? Putting yourself a little bit more into the head of that person. So I'll just, uh, absentee owner list is one of the most popular lists. I'll just pick on that one just to give you some examples, right? So instead of sending me the absentee owner list, what if you sent to the absentee owner list of absentee owners who are over 80 years old? Oh, that's good. Right? So now you've got a landlord who's over 80, who's probably starting to think about, disposing of things, right, cleaning stuff up, even maybe over 70 or over 65, maybe at 65, because they're starting to retire, maybe they're going to sell that retirement home as part of uh, their retirement plans, right? Maybe not. Maybe it's part, an important part of their income by 80. But, you know, and would you say the same thing to that person as, a 35-year-old who's executing the, you know, buy rent uh, re, or, or buy rehab uh, rent uh, refinance burr strategy, right? Like those are very different people you need to say different things to if you want to try to buy that property, right? The burr guy probably isn't a seller. So, you know, that's where if you think about what you're mailing, A, you can mail fewer pieces, and with a better message, you'll get a much better response rate. You may only get a response at all, right? Because if you've got 15 people in your market mailing absentee owners, all with the same thing, and you're the one that connects, right? You're going to get a call none of those others will. Another example, like of uh, just thinking about things differently, let's take vacant and absentee owners. So a lot of people will do the vacant list. So if you do vacant and it happens to be absentee, right, owner, that's not the owner's address that's vacant. There's that's no sign of distress necessarily. It just means his tenant isn't picking up the mail. It could mean his tenant, you know, he doesn't have a tenant. So that you know, or she, right? I should be saying he or she, but you know, what though if the owner's mailing address was vacant,
1: mm. nobody
0: sells that list,
1: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. right? And so that's where we just look at things different. We're like, vacant to us is far more interesting on the owner's mailing address than it is on the side address. So we offer both, right? And so that now you can go, okay, that that's interesting. Here's a landlord who literally isn't picking up mail at the address where he's having his tax bill sent. There's definitely something going on there.
1: That is an interesting sign. Now, one of the things that I wonder there is, you know if they have the property owned in you know 123 main street llc but it's you know mailing to their house or whatever it's not getting picked up but it's still going to 123 main street llc they still know why it's coming shoot this you know they can rec- still see that from a mile away can you go even deeper and say all right we know who you know the owner of record is for 123 main street llc and we're just going to address it to you know tim or sally at that right. whatever address that seems a bit more powerful to at least get opened, right? That's step one, get opened.
0: So, you know, you get companies on the commercial side, really, um, that focus on those single purpose LLCs, um, Reonomy, Prospect Now, both, you know, decent companies with good stuff that offer that service. Um, they charge a lot for it though, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're just hitting done in Bradstreet or whatever. And the problem there is this database is databases where you go get the names of the LLC, Dun & Bradstreet's in the business of providing business credit. Most single purpose LLCs don't need business credit. So they're not really in Dun & Bradstreet, you know? You're not gonna get a hit, you're not gonna get a return. It works great if you're working on large commercial properties and it's a professional LLC management company, right? And then they may get a hit, but on those really true single purpose LLCs, it's not very good. So we have an article, that's in our blog that talks about how to do that Still more of a manual process, but you know, we're one third the cost and you do it yourself.
1: Right, hey, I've done that manually myself uh, with open, opencorporates.com, is what I use, but it still took a lot of time because there's 400 one, two, three Main Street LLCs. So you have to know what state yep. it's in and then figure out, you know, which one's still active and which one's probably it. So it takes a lot of time and judgment. Hopefully, you can, you know, hire somebody in the Philippines to handle that or something, but
0: handle that. Yeah. 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 For sure.
1: So, okay. What's the, as far as getting differentiated and then there's that next step of getting them to take some action, right? We need a call to action. We need to get in touch with them. They have our letter, but you know, what do you think is the best way to get that next step? Should we ask for a text message, an email, or give me a call? I mean, what are your thoughts about that?
0: Yeah. So again, like, you know, my competitors out there are all pitching easy buttons and, and, you know, our customers are the largest buyers in the United States, right? You know, so we have customers that are buying well over a thousand homes a year, right? And our better customers are, are, you know, almost all of our customers are doing more than 10 deals a year. So. I, unfortunately, I'm never going to be the easy button guy. That's you know just pitching you on send me ninety nine dollars and I'll you know get your get you a deal that you'll make a hundred grand. Like that's not us at all. So that's I think that's just an important caveat. Right? That's also
1: not real. So let's also bear that in mind.
0: <laughs> yeah. So we're not in the business of extracting money from dummies, yeah. right? Like, yeah. <laughs> is one way to say it. Right? We're in the business of actually getting deals done, and getting deals done is hard. And, and I hate sure. to say that, right? Because that's going to turn some people off, go, I don't want to work. I just want a hundred grand um, or I just want a monthly rental income. And I totally get that, right? Like, so what I'm going to talk about is what the guys who are actually doing deals do. And what's most important there to understand is that impressions build trust, right? It doesn't matter how much of a jerk you are, what kind of a terrible person you are. We can think of plenty of people that have household name recognition, and even have a lot of people believe in them and trust them that are not the greatest people in the world.
1: Oh, sure. Politicians. I'm not going to name any, right. right? We're not naming any, but politicians, number one. So anyway.
0: Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, what that's about is impressions, right? So for so the the real thing that we see work, right, at the end of the day, it's very unlikely you're going to send one postcard and get a call and do a deal, right? Right. The very best folks out there that are doing the most deals are doing a combination of things. They're sending postcards, they're sending more than one, right? They're building impressions. They're taking that mailing address and the person's name and um, uh, skip traced, you could say, appended phones and emails and using that to create custom audiences to display ads to those folks. And that builds impressions, right? They're making calls. And they're calling the ones that look like the best prospects and that's making impressions. They're sending emails and that's making impressions. They're doing voicemail drop. And, you know, be careful here of, you know, different rules. But generally there's nothing in, and again, don't take this as legal advice, but uh, the TCPA and some of these things are about selling, not so much about buying. So at least a lot of our customers feel like they can make Phone calls without even looking at the do not call if they're calling about buying your house, not selling or listing your house. Uh, no legal advice there. Go talk to your own. Never legal
1: host. advice on this show for the record. So you're right. We're yeah. good.
0: So uh, you know, it's the folks who are crushing it, who have a regular pipeline, who are doing a lot of deals, are the ones that are making multiple impressions and have a good message that matches, you know, what that particular audience, right? It's like I tell realtors all the time, look, you're you're farming, you've got a subdivision that's your market and you farm it. Is everybody in that subdivision the same? Well, they have some things in common because they chose that subdivision, but some have equity, some don't, right? Some have lived there for 20 years, some have lived there six months, you know, Uh, just lots of different, some have kids, some don't, right? Some have young kids, some have older kids and uh, very few public records companies pull in that demographics information and those other things that allow you to really tailor your message. And it's that kind of differentiation that the guys that are doing 10 plus deals a year are starting to do. And certain the ones doing a hundred plus, a thousand plus deals a year have to do.
1: Interesting. So, one of the things I wonder is I I talk with with you know some of these guys who say do a lot of wholesale deals where they're sending a lot of letters or, you know, some of these guys who say I spend fifteen thousand dollars a month on my my mailers. What percentage of those guys would you say, guys and gals, would you say are doing it the smart way versus more of a spray and pray? And the spray and pray is still at least moderately profitable for them, whereas it'd be potentially more profitable or a pro, a likely more profitable to do it the smart way with all this additional data and like-
0: Depending on how, how good they are, it's, you know, two to 10 X better returns, right? Um, on how systematic and how good they are versus spray and pray. Spray and pray at the end of the day, at volume does work, right? It's just, it's a law of large numbers, right? So spray and pray- at volume, spending 15 grand a month, it will work. You will get deals. You will probably still have an ROI, right? Just basic absentee owner list, base and faking list, the really basic lists, and just send the same thing. You know, you will still get lucky every once in a while, you know, but you're wasting a lot of money.
1: (laughs) It's still cheap enough to send letters, I guess is what that comes down to.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's every door direct mail versus targeted direct mail, right? Like to some degree, right? Like you're going to have a better ROI. You're going to have more predictable results as you improve that message and the rest. And the other thing is, is you are the spray and pray method. You're a little more at risk to business disruption, right? Because somebody who comes in and starts doing a better job, more targeted in your area is going to be more likely to to get those calls and start taking away business you would have gotten before. So early on in a market, you're the first one to pick up some new list type and start mailing to it, right? Spray and pray works fine, right? If you're you're early, you can do that. And then the more the mature the market gets around something, the more differentiated you have to become to continue to um, extract. So a lot of the spray and pray guys, they spend a lot of time jumping from list to list to list and whatever the new hot thing is. And so that that's kind of the, that path, whereas they could continue to extract more by getting refining within in that market with better messaging. So it, it works. Yeah, you can definitely uh, do it, but it's it's not really more expensive to do the more targeted. It takes a little more thought. It takes a little bit more, you know, effort. But with a, a two to ten x better return, it, it's time well spent,
1: yeah, I mean it's 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 maybe more effort in the it sounds like more effort on the front end setting up the systems and the procedures, but you want to return on that effort on the back end. and hopefully that partially comes in just better qualified leads coming your way. You're not chasing down you know people who aren't interested or got the wrong, you know, got a postcard when maybe they shouldn't have because they weren't a prospect in the first place. Something I thought was really interesting that you mentioned a little bit earlier was, if you will, the more uh multimedia options, you know, the, the phone number versus like email and and kind of target them targeting them in different ways there. I mean the phone number is kind of obvious or, or you know there are a few ways you can do that. I mean we've probably all gotten text messages about you know I want to buy your place or voicemails or any of that. The email, what are you seeing there? I mean are folks really adopting that and and I guess how can we how can folks like target that list? I mean, what are our options online?
0: Yeah. um, You know, certainly companies like us will append email as well. The match rates tend not to be as good as phone. And, you know, most of that data comes from what's called co-registration. And, you know, the easy way to say that is, you know, if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. And yeah, that's nobody reads privacy policies, but, but that's, the, yeah. that's basically it. Like you're giving somebody your email address for the chance to enter a survey. Well, they're making money on you by selling your email address, right? So mm-hmm. that business is called co-registration. So us and others gather that, that data and attach it to these homeowners, make it available. So usually when you're signing up for those things, you're more likely to use your Gmail or your Hotmail account than your you know, work address, right? So Whatever it, it is, what it is, but it's pretty inexpensive to send email, and deliverability is hard. Actually, getting it into the person's inbox though is really hard, and you can't, you know, Mailchimp will quickly ban you if you just download 10,000 email addresses from us, and load them into Mailchimp and start sending. Right? They're going to go. <laughs> they're going to get enough people. There is a little, and I'm not saying to go break Mailchimp's rules, right? Um, but one thing that we do see is like. And I'll just use foreclosures as an example, right? If you come after folks that are in foreclosure with the message of, you know, hey, you're in foreclosure, you need to do something, you should sell me your house, right? Like that spam button's gonna get hit a million times, right? If you send something to them that's like, hey, I wanted to let you know, I'm I'm a I'm local in your area. I wanted you to know that we're seeing an uptick in foreclosures, you know, and, and, you know, we are actually seeing some, a small uptick in foreclosures. It's still low. And if you know anyone, not if you, if you know anyone, cause you're basically presuming they're not in foreclosure, you know, that's suffering through this. Like I have a lot of empathy for this. I've helped people, you know, whatever. Those people don't get the spam button clicked on them. Can you imagine? right? Because it's, it's coming from a place of help and assistance and information. You know, there's been 20 foreclosures just in your neighborhood, whatever, right? Like that's stuff I want to keep getting. Like, especially if I'm in foreclosure, I want to know that. And this person isn't, isn't accusing me of being in foreclosure. They're just reaching out and, oh, they're local. And, oh, there's their name and phone number. And they seem genuine, right? I'm not going to click spam on that. It was useful to me. So uh, most of the people who get banned or blocked from spam. It's because they've got their message wrong.
1: That's a lot more personable too than, um, yeah, that, that approach. Now, I'm glad Depend you mentioned- a
0: personal account.
1: Yeah, you might want to have a few of those in this case.
0: And <laughs> on your you- volume, if, again, if you've done a good job targeting, you have a small list and it's an honest, genuine letter to each, you know, note to each person and it's real, right? Um, you tend not to get the spam button pressed.
1: Nice. I'm glad you mentioned the current foreclosure trends. I want to at least touch on that. I mean, you're tied into the data. We heard so much, you know, either earlier this year or really on, early on in the pandemic about how there's going to be this huge foreclosure wave. Sounds like that's not what you're seeing. Maybe it's a little early, but I doubt it. What do you think?
0: You know, we are seeing a, a bounce up uh, for sure, you know, um, and we're probably going to start seeing headlines like 100% increase in foreclosures. But you got to remember, 100% of zero is still zero, right? Like, so be very careful as you're listening to foreclosure headlines, especially from people trying to sell you stuff, right? Like, uh, you know, I, we're seeing lots of like, you know, become an REO agent, uh, foreclosure is going through the roof, uh, 200% in the last month, and it, you know, okay, it went from 20 to 60, like, okay, that's 200%. But, you know, like, whatever, right? You know, so just be wary of percentages because we were at such a low number that we can have big percentage increases. And we are starting in places to see some big percentage increases and we are starting to see some more foreclosure sales. And it's very, it's very local right now, right? One of my uh, customers, friends, you know, called me the other day. He bought four properties at a foreclosure auction in one day he hasn't bought four in four months. So, uh, You know, he's like, it's back, it's going, it's huge, (laughs) right? I go look at the numbers and there's definitely more, but it's not like he's going to buy four tomorrow and four the next day and four the next day, right? So um, we are seeing some increases. You have to understand though that it's, we're in a completely different regulatory framework today than we were in 2008. We will not have another 2008 crisis. We've had a lot of foreclosures you know, there's the five D's of foreclosures, right? Death, disease, divorce, drugs, denial. Um, that is kind of this base rate of foreclosures, and and normally those would have happened over the last 18 months, and they haven't because we just artificially stopped all of them. Mm-hmm. We didn't say, you know, it, most of the the rules are like, you know, if it's a COVID related thing. But how the heck's the bank going to figure that out and not face a lawsuit afterwards? They just they just said eh. Unless they really had like, okay, everybody's dead. There's no kids. We're going to sell the property. Like that's basically all that's been going through or land or things like that. We're now back to where, okay, all those other five things that aren't COVID related are starting to go through because they just, you know, there's nobody going to rescue that. Nobody's going to start making the payments. Forbearance isn't going to matter. So we're going to see a little bump here for sure. And I think when that bump happens, will vary a little bit by state. It'll vary a little bit by lender. So it won't all come at mo- once, but I think over the next 12 months, we'll see increased foreclosure activity. still gonna be really minuscule compared to you know, the crisis. But that regulatory framework thing, we're not gonna see uh, dumping. It's, we're not gonna see foreclosures impact house prices uh, in any wide scale way. So I I think that's, it's pretty safe to say it's a non, you know, the guys who are active at the trustee sales, they're finally going to see a little, a little meat on the bone again, but it's not going to be the uh, royal feast that 2008 was.
1: that's definitely good to hear. I think one of the things folks don't realize is that banks, um, and since the great recession, banks kind of realized how much money they really lost by selling those properties for basically nothing to investors in the wake of the great recession. So they've they have different processes now for handling foreclosures so that there's not going to be those properties dumped on the market for nothing. They're the ones that they do foreclose on they're going to at least take a little better care of, maybe sell closer to fair market value as opposed to pennies on the dollar, which is what we saw, you know, over a decade ago.
0: Yeah, the only thing I would add there, right? I totally agree with everything you just said, but w- we do need to keep in mind that the banks were required by their regulators to get bad assets off their books as oh, fast true. as possible. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So they literally, you know, 30, 60, 90 day late notice of default notice a trustee sale or, you know, or list pendants and, and file the judicial Like they, they just, they were on a, a track. Right. And I don't know if you remember all the mark to model versus mark to market and all that uh, debate and the rest, like, then they were having liquidity problems because they had to mark these things to market, and then we allow them to mark to model. Like the regulatory framework, really, well, it caused the huge, you know, uh, decline in prices. You know, clearly the banks and their lobbying of Congress, and, and Congress doesn't get enough beat up enough about this. But you know, the Glass steagall and graham Leach Bliley, those things set up the foreclosure crisis and. The bank lending practices set up that crisis. The regulatory framework caused prices to drop so dramatically, which then snowballed the crisis. So it had multiple players of which banks were only one.
1: Wow. Well, I'm glad that it sounds like we have a better outlook right now. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Have you ever wanted to invest in the private lending and debt side of real estate? You might find that going out and finding borrowers on your own is tough. When you find a borrower, you have the task of evaluating their plan all on your own. And the traditional way of lending private money highly concentrates your risk because you'll probably be funding the whole rehab loan on your own. That meant writing loan checks well into the hundreds of thousands of dollars placing a lot of risk in individual borrowers and properties. Not to mention there's a lot for you to know in terms of how to structure these loans so that you can help protect yourself and work with the borrower in your interests. Now there's a new way to invest in the debt side of real estate that turns the private money lending space on its head. You can invest in a variety of debt instruments with this new platform with as little as $10 in each opportunity you can diversify your investment across a wide variety of borrowers, geographies, and asset types. This new platform is called GroundFloor. They make it easy to invest in either your name or using your self-directed IRA. And if you don't already have a self-directed IRA, don't worry. They make it easy to get started and get one opened. Go to www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor to get started or click the link in the show notes. See the ground floor site for full terms and details of what they offer. Once again, that's www.passivewealthstrategy.com slash ground floor or click the link in the show notes. Back to the show. All right, Sean, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready?
0: Uh yeah, yeah. I didn't <laughs> I haven't come up with answers yet, but I'll do it on the uh on the fly.
1: I'm sure you're good. I'm sure you're good. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education?
0: Well, yeah, other than in my, you know, the next obvious one, right, is in my, uh, in my business, uh, you know, it's still kind of in myself. So we'll skip the uh, in my, uh, in myself thing and in my own business. I, I think your own residence is a good investment so long as you plan to stay 10 years or longer like that it's really funny is I built a really nice house and it seemed like really stupid and just kind of an ego-driven thing. And, uh, but I was smart about it and I picked a really good market in a place that I thought would really appreciate and all the rest. And so not only have I enjoyed the place I live, but it's tripled in value. Awesome. And it's actually one of my best performing investments and it won't be an investment until I sell it, which I don't really like to think about my house as an investment. I like to think about it as a place to live. But you know that's good. Um, this office building that I, I'm sitting in, I bought during the crisis. You know, so when you do see those, the blood in the water, um, obviously uh, there's an it, it, um, opportunity there. Uh, I bought it. When I bought it, it was a 12 cap and uh, 30% cash on cash return. Wow. Um, after putting 500 grand into it to you know fix it up and stabilize it and all the rest, it, it's a, a, almost a 20 cap and uh, 60% cash on cash return, which obviously means that there was no debt for very long, right? So, you know, there do happen along those. One of the things that you don't think about when you're doing like those 15,000 mailers, even the spray and pray approach is every once in a while, that incredible deal comes along, you know? So when I flipped 160 properties, you know, it wasn't one out of five, it wasn't one out of 10, you know, but it was probably one out of 25 where you just hit an absolute home run. And it's one of the benefits of being out there and just doing deals. And because sooner or later, the really good ones uh, come to you. So being out there, being engaged, doing the so-so deals, to be in the right place for the really good deals, I think is, so doing those so-so deals is actually an investment in getting the great deals.
1: I love that, especially when I hear folks talk about, the market's hot, I'm gonna sit out, or the market's uncertain, I'm gonna sit out. Well, it's fine if you decide not to invest in these things, right? That's totally your decision, but if you wanna get re-engaged, keep an eye, like keep looking at things, make offers, You know, even if they don't get accepted, stay involved, so you can look for those you know say so so deals like you said so that you can get to the really good deals because if you just stay completely disengaged on the sidelines uninvolved you're not going to be ready when the good deal comes along you're not going to even be at the party when it happens so you know and by so all means there
0: are so good deals happening right now it's like you know we we always hear from folks I'm leaving California because I'm in California right I'm leaving California there's it's too expensive there's no deals there and yet having the data and looking at the deals that happen, and, and we we it's really easy to go in and look and see who's flipped deals. And I will regularly look through the flips, and man, there are deals happening all the time where people are hitting home runs, not just doubles or triples, but freaking home runs. And in California, and it's like all these people running off the, you know, from California. If you're in Texas or Florida, do that, right? But if you're in California, to run off and do Florida when there's a deal that happened down your street. That is more than more cash in that one deal than twenty deals in Florida, right? Like, what are you doing?
1: <laughs> Great question. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made?
0: Oh, uh, fortunately, no really big ones. You know, I really think that the most valuable thing you have to invest is your your time. And, um i've gotten a lot pickier about where I invest my time and you know, maybe keep it simple we'll keep it uh we'll keep it real estate i would say uh getting talked into deals that i didn't have any personal knowledge in so um you know somebody bringing me a deal that I didn't know um one of the things I do personally is, you know, I like to know something. If I'm investing in multifamily, I like to know something about multifamily. I don't need to be an expert, but I dive in and I learn at least enough about it that I know the right questions to ask. So, my worst one was learning that lesson where I jumped into a multifamily deal without really understanding multifamily, and uh, it was still a positive return, but it was a painful experience. And uh, multifamily is not my gig personally. I, I have a lot of friends who love multifamily and kill it in multifamily are experts, but it's, that one's not my gig. So I, I bought an apartment uh, uh, building and it was uh, two years of my life. I would le- like to have back.
1: <laughs> well, tough lesson learned. I'm glad it was profitable, but it, I bet it was a lot of heartache along the way, or it sounds like it was my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing?
0: all opportunity comes from change
1: interesting like personal inward change or the outward change in the market that we need to you know to any, jump on
0: any change right like everything that happens to you that you think is terrible is an opportunity right so the great financial crisis was an opportunity you know everything that wars are opportunities like everything bad good indifferent all change the internet Obviously, huge change, huge opportunity, right? But only for those that embrace it, right? For those that didn't think it was going to be a big thing, they got crushed like Blockbuster doesn't exist, right? So you have to look and say, if you have a mindset that is all change is opportunity, then change will never bother you again in your life. And you will have so much more success and happiness. This is so much of the pandemic, huge opportunities for lots of people, huge. I'm not saying it, there wasn't a lot bad there, but if you change your mindset about those things, right, a lot of stuff comes out of it that's positive as well as negative. And if you're on the positive side, you're going to be a lot more successful in life if you're on the negative side, hand-wringing about it.
1: I love that. And I've noticed that the most successful, the wealthiest people uh, who I know all have that mentality. Everybody in this space has that mentality or something very, very close to it. And I appreciate that you brought that us today and pointed that out there. are A couple of great quotes we're going to have to grab in there and turn into Instagram posts and all that great stuff. (laughs) Sean, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for everything you're doing out there in the market. If folks want to reach out, if they want to track you down, if they want to learn more about your company or, you know, get more information about, uh, finding off-market deals from your blog or anything like that, where can they track you down?
0: Yeah, so propertyradar.com is the the company. We also have foreclosureradar.com if you're only really interested in foreclosures. And I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. I'm not a super at- active social uh, person, but you can find me there and you can reach me there if you have a, a question, super easy. And um, we also have a community, community.propertyradar.com. And uh, so pretty pretty easy to find. And Sean at propertyradar.com is my email. So I'm that easy to find.
1: (laughs) Perfect. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that. It's so much that helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. Don't, for, don't, excuse me. don't forget to subscribe yourself. That way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's when we're here. That's when we're helping you escape the Wall Street Casino. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. Appreciate you joining us today. I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.